morning, Sovereign Grace. We will be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, so continue to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to cover only one verse this morning, only one verse, but don't let that mislead you. This verse is packed with some glorious truths, and it deserves far more than we can even give it this morning, but we will meditate on it together, and the Lord will be glorified in our time, we pray. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the end of the chapter. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our living God. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Let's pray that God would help us to rejoice in his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do rejoice in your word and in the truth that you give us here. We rejoice, Lord, that your grace has appeared to us in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given himself for us and called us out of darkness into the light to live a life that is holy and devoted only to you, Lord. So now, Lord, as new creations in Christ who desire to do your holy will, Lord, we ask that you would help us to eagerly wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of glory, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, give us patience and wisdom as we wait. Lord, that we might honor you as we persevere in faith and proclaim your gospel with grateful hearts to the end of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. One of my favorite questions to ask other Christians in this church and beyond is, what is the gospel? You know we care about that a lot here. It's one of the interview questions we ask you. And no offense to adults in this room, I do love to hear your gospel presentations. But one of the favorite people I like to ask that question to are kids. Because kids, they give such a simple and sweet and often more profound answer than they even realize. For example, when my daughter Hope was younger, I used to ask her repeatedly, what is the gospel? And there was a period of time where she would just look at me with this goofy little grin and smile and say, oh, the gospel? The gospel is Jesus Christ. And she would laugh because she's being a smart aleck, of course. And I would laugh and say, yes, of course, that's true, but who is he and what has he done? But see, fundamentally, though, she's right. Jesus Christ is the gospel himself. And I think as adults, sometimes we forget that that's the case, or we take that for granted, or sometimes we even kind of dismiss that answer as being the Sunday school answer because it's just too simplistic. You see, when I often ask adults what the gospel is, one thing I will get is a long testimony. This is the way that God has changed me. This is the way that God has saved me from substance abuse or a difficult situation in my life. Or I will get the kind of theological defense. 
theological treatise on the atonement or the trinity or the hypostatic union. Now, please don't get me wrong. There's a good time for a testimony to faithfully teach others how you came to faith. And there's a good time to defend the gospel. We're called to defend the gospel and to unpack the truths of the gospel. But brothers and sisters, the gospel is not primarily just a set of theological facts. It's not just a set of blessings, just a set of benefits we have that we're given apart from Christ. Yes, we communicate the gospel through truths and through theological statements, but brothers and sisters, good theology doesn't save us. Good theology never has. If it did, then the devil would be saved. And you know what? The gospel is also not just, please hear me on this, I said just, the gospel is also not just a changed life. Look, a good diet can change your life. A social program can change your life, like AA or or Teen Challenge. I mean, even a false religion can change your life and improve your marriage in some potential situations. And again, the gospel should change our life, shouldn't it? It should profoundly affect everything we do. But a changed life is not the gospel. The effects of the gospel, the result of the gospel, but a changed life is not the gospel. See, in a very real sense, the Sunday school answer is right. Jesus Christ is the gospel himself. And that's the answer that Paul gives us in this text. He is the good news. And it's only in him that sinners like you and I can be saved and reconciled to our God. Now, if we are to know Christ, truly know him, and know the gospel, then of course we need to unpack and understand who God is. We understand what Christ has done for us. And that's what Paul does in this brief little verse here. The seven lines of glorious theology will be our seven points for today. Now you think, seven points? you got to be kidding me. Three-point sermons are long. Three-point sermons are for wimps. So we're going to do seven-point sermons today. No, I'm joking. No, the reason why we have seven points is because this is a creed. This is a confession. It's a hymn. Each line is packed with some profound theology that deserves our individual attention. Really, it deserves a whole sermon on each line, but we will go line by line through this wonderful hymn to summarize what the gospel is. So I'll give you seven words along the way that will help you understand what the gospel is. So here they are up front, and we'll review them. The gospel is a mystery, It's the incarnation, it's justification, it's observation, it's proclamation, it's reception, and it's glorification. And those are all in Christ. And so we'll understand those as we go through this first. So first of all, first line here, what is the gospel? It's Christ himself, who is the mystery of godliness. We see that in that first line right there, right? Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Of godliness. Now, kids, if I were to ask you what is a mystery in general, I bet most of you would probably think, well, mystery is something that I can't understand, something that I can't figure out on my own, like a puzzle or something, or a novel or a movie that keeps you guessing until the last minute. But that's not the mystery here that Paul is talking about. That's not really what mystery is in the Bible. 
A mystery in the scriptures is something that's hidden for a period of time, but then is revealed only by God. A great definition, if you want it, is in Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Listen to this. This describes what a mystery in the Bible is. The mystery, and it's a mystery of the gospel here, was kept secret for long ages, but it has now been disclosed. It's been revealed by God to the nations in Christ. So the mystery that's been revealed by God is the gospel, the person and work of Christ. It was concealed in the shadow lands of the Old Testament. But now because Christ has come, it's been revealed. That does not mean, and you know this if you've been following along with Genesis, that doesn't mean that the Old Testament saints didn't know the gospel or they didn't know Jesus. They knew Jesus truly. They trusted in him by faith. But they didn't know all the details and how it would work out one day. How it would all be fulfilled in the day of Christ is why Christ can say that Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ because that was when the mystery that was concealed in the Old Testament was revealed in the Son of God. Now what is that good news? What is that mystery that has been revealed? Well, it says here it's the mystery of godliness. Well, why godliness? Well, you know, if you've been following along again in Genesis, that godliness is simply God-likeness. And from the very beginning, we were created in the likeness of God, created in his image to reflect his character to this world. But what happened? We rebelled against God. We rebelled against his law, and because of that, by nature now, we reflect a lie about God. We don't tell the truth about who God is in and of ourselves. And so Jesus has come to reveal that truth, to even reveal the way back to God. He came to reverse the curse, to restore what was broken and lost in the garden. He came to reveal how sinners can be saved and sanctified, can be made holy so that we too can dwell with God. Now, please don't miss this. We need to be clear on this. Jesus didn't come just to show us the way. He didn't come just to help us clean up our mess, to give us some tools that we can use to become good little boys and girls. That's not why he came. He came to be the way. Like the verse that we've all probably memorized in Sunday school, John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to God the Father. So Christ alone is our source of godliness. He is the cause of our godliness. He's the only one that can transform us into God-like people and restore the image that was marred and broken at the fall. And that's exactly what he came to do, isn't it? He came to live in the place of the ungodly, to be godly for the ungodly. To obey God's law. He died on the cross taking the penalty that the ungodly deserve. That we deserve. The wrath of God all upon himself. And he rose from the dead. So that those who trust in his finished work by faith. Those ungodly people can be made godly. Can be made righteous. Can be made holy through faith in Christ. I know we're used to hearing this, brothers and sisters. But do you see what incredible grace it is for God to reveal this mystery to us? God didn't have to reveal anything to us. We don't deserve to know this mystery. He could have left us in the dark. He should have left us blind to our sin. That's what we deserved at the end of the day. 
But by God's incredible grace, he sent his son to live and die in the place of sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, what did God do, Ephesians 2? God made us alive in Christ. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. See, we didn't discover this mystery all on our own by our hard work or our good detective skills. We didn't stumble upon the mystery of God by some dumb luck or because we were just seeking out an answer to find God ourselves. No, God has sovereignly revealed the truth to us. It's concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in Christ. And so if you're a believer this morning, fundamentally, even though it's through faith, yes, but you are a believer this morning because God has sovereignly opened your eyes. Opened your eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And softened your heart, giving you a heart of flesh instead of your heart of stone so you can trust him by faith. So brothers and sisters, if you can see this mystery, if you know that this is a glorious mystery, then praise God for his sovereign grace. Praise God that once you were lost, but now you're found. Once you were blind, but now you see this incredible mystery of godliness, who is Christ our Lord. So what is the gospel? It's the mystery of godliness. Secondly, it's the incarnation of Christ. I know that's a really big word, but it's probably not a word that we're unfamiliar with or that we can't understand. Especially here in the land of carne asada, right? The land of carne means meat, roasted flesh. So when we hear incarnation, we're talking about in flesh, in the body. And that's what we're saying, is that God became man, became a man. And that's what the second line of this hymn says. He, that's Christ, God in flesh, was revealed in the flesh. Now this is the central message of Christmas, isn't it? That the eternal word of God that we read about in John 1, who was with God in the beginning and who was God from the beginning. In John 1:14, we read, he became flesh. He became man and dwelt, tabernacled among us. This is why we sing about him as our blessed hope, our great Emmanuel. Because he is our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Both of those realities are true. And brothers and sisters, I know we're used to hearing that, especially at Christmas time. But you ever stop and just meditate on the incarnation and realize what a mind-blowing fact it is? Or do you kind of get to this point of the year and have this been there, done that mentality with Christmas? Or even Christianity in many ways. You read these stories, you hear us talk about them, and you're like, ah, yes, the Immaculate Conception, oh, Great, I've heard it a million times. There's baby Jesus in a manger. There's the sheep, there's the shepherds, there's the angels singing. Yeah, I learned that in Sunday school. Of course, they're worshiping a baby, normal. He's God and man, of course, I've known about this my whole life. Now, you may not say those things, but do you think about what we're saying here? Do you realize what a miracle, what a mystery this is, the incarnation? Jesus is God incarnate. The God-man, that's almost an oxymoron. It's almost a paradox. 
mean, how can God Almighty, who spoke the world into existence, become a helpless baby? How can the eternal, unchanging God be born a man and grow up and develop and sleep and rest and, and seeming to be finite? How is that even possible? How can the creator become a creature? Now, the Bible is abundantly clear that both of these realities are true. Jesus is truly God and truly man. It's hard to read the Gospels, even for a few pages, and not to see that reality. And over the years, thankful because of bad theology, theologians have clarified what this means and helped us understand how he can be both truly God and truly man. How Jesus, the person, can suffer in his humanity, but not his deity. But like Chad said last week, this is still a profound mystery. We can say far more about what it is not than what it is. I want you to listen to the Chalcedonian Creed, just one little section of it. This is written in 451 AD, probably one of the best summaries of the incarnation. Listen to this and think how you would respond to this. Jesus is to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusably, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by their union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. Now, if you read that and think, of course, basic, no problem, it totally makes sense, then you need to read that again. You need to read that again and again and again until your mind just explodes. Because we're trying to understand, we're trying to put in words our incomprehensible God, who we will never fully understand. Not only will we never fully understand God, we won't even fully understand one thing about God. Now don't get me wrong, we can truly know God. We can apprehend him even though we can't comprehend him. But brothers and sisters, the only right response to the incarnation, to a sentence like that, is to fall on your knees and worship. Worship the God who became man, who took on flesh, and to praise God. Because don't forget, we needed this mystery. We desperately needed this miracle to save us from our sin. Because we needed a substitute who was truly God. Someone who is perfect and sinless, who can live perfectly in our place, and who can pay an infinite debt that we owed our holy God. We needed someone, a substitute that is truly man to represent us. One who is tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Someone who can die on the cross in our place. And Jesus is that God-man the only mediator between man and God, our perfect substitute. Look, if he were not truly God, he would not be worthy enough to save us. If he were not truly man, he would not be able to save us and take our place. This is a profound and glorious mystery that we can't get used to, brothers and sisters. We should be praising God for it to the end of our days. Well, there's far more we could say about that, but let's move on to our third point. What is the gospel, the mystery of godliness, the incarnation of Christ, and thirdly, it's the justification of Christ. Look at the third line. The third line says, vindicated by the Spirit. 
Now, some of your translations might say the word justified by the Spirit instead of vindicated. It's probably even in a little footnote on the ESV. I actually think that's a better translation. It's the same word we use when we say justified by faith. Jesus is justified by the Spirit. Now, that probably sounds really, really strange to us. How can Jesus Christ be justified? Aren't sinners justified? Don't sinners need to be justified and declared righteous in Christ? Look, if Christ needs to be justified and declared righteous like me, I'm in big trouble because I depend on his righteousness to be declared right. So what does Paul mean here when he says Christ is justified by the Spirit? We need to remember justification really has two ideas to it. The first is when someone is justified, it's only a legal declaration. It doesn't make someone righteous. Like this doesn't make Christ any more righteous than he is. It's just declaring what we already know. Christ is righteous. And secondly, we need to remember when Christ died on the cross, he was put on that cross because he was condemned by the world. He was given the penalty of death, the penalty of an unrighteous man, of a blasphemer, of a guilty man. But was he guilty? No. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's law perfectly in our place. He never sinned, not even once, because he's truly God. So what did God do for this sinless perfect man when he was condemned and, and crucified, God reversed the verdict. He raised his son from the dead. His resurrection declared to the world that this son of man is righteous and holy and innocent. He truly is the savior of the world. In other words, brothers and sisters, if Christ was guilty, he would have stayed in the grave. Because remember, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but he didn't stay in the grave. Death could not hold him. Why? Because he was innocent. Because he was righteous. And so the Holy Spirit raises him from the dead so that the whole world would know this is the righteous Lord. This is gloriously good news for us again. Because remember, this means that we can trust Jesus. And every single word he said, all the promises he said were true. We are declared that he's righteous and he never lied to us because he can't sin. So he truly is the great I am. He truly is God in flesh. He truly is our shepherd and our king and our vine. He truly has all authority in heaven on earth right now. And he's also with us, dwelling with us as our God and our king. And we can't forget he hasn't just conquered death for himself. He's also conquered death for all those who trust in him. Romans 8, 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, dwells in us, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, because Jesus was justified, declared righteous by being raised from the dead, we too will also raise from the dead. And one day, we won't just be declared righteous. We are declared righteous through faith in Christ. One day, we will be made righteous by the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead and raises us from the dead. So what is the gospel? 
It's the mystery of godliness. It's the incarnation of Christ. It's the justification of Christ through his resurrection. And fourthly, and don't worry, these will go faster now. Fourthly, it's the observation, observation of Christ. Look at the fourth line here. Still talking about Christ here. We're saying he was seen by angels, seen by angels. I know when you read that, you think, well, that's a pretty obvious verse. It's not a tricky verse at all, but it actually is kind of tricky because angels can actually be two different kinds of people in a way. So angels that we're probably always thinking of is spiritual messengers. And we know if we've read the gospel, if you were paying attention this morning about angels seen on high, we know that angels are all over the gospel accounts. They're always with Christ. They were there at his birth singing. They were there in the wilderness when he was struggling, ministering to him. Even there right before he was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were there at the resurrection, giving the message that, to the disciples that their Lord is risen from the dead. And they were even there at the ascension, we find out in 1 Peter 3. So which of these places, which of these moments is Paul talking about here? When was he seen by angels? At all of these? At his resurrection? That would be strange to talk about. He just talked about the resurrection. Maybe it's the ascension because that's next. Well, we don't really know. I think there's another way to look at this verse, and in my opinion, it makes a lot more sense. And this is one of those areas where you're free to disagree with me here. But angels has two ways it can be translated. It can be translated angels, or it can be translated as messengers. And we know that there's spiritual messengers, the angels we just talked about, but there were also physical messengers in the New Testament, weren't there? Who were God's first physical messengers? Those that were sent out by God with the message of the gospel. Well, those are the apostles. That's what to be an apostle means, to be sent out by God. And they saw Jesus. They observed his ministry. They saw his teaching. They witnessed his resurrection, his ascension. They were even the ones that the gospel accounts made really clear were touching Jesus' resurrected body. Saw him raised from the dead. Saw him just appear in the room and drink and eat. And it was their witness of the physical resurrected Lord that was the foundation of the church. Along with Christ Jesus who himself was the cornerstone. And Paul said that to the Ephesian church. Which is the same church he's talking to right here in this book. In 1 Timothy. That the foundation of the church was the witness of the apostles. And then on top of that. We can't forget the way that John, the Apostle John, talked about the resurrected Lord at the end of his life in 1 John chapter 1. In fact, I want you to read this for yourself. Keep your finger here and turn to 1 John. It's probably not too many pages over because there's a lot of short books between there and 1 John. But turn to 1 John for a minute. 1 John, I want you to hear this. John is so emphatic here about seeing Christ and the risen Lord, that he sounds like a little kid having the best day of his life. He does, really. First John chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to what he says about the resurrected Lord. That which was from the beginning. Well, what's that? Or who is that? That's God. He's the only one from the beginning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. That's a really funny statement, by the way. What do you see with with your eyes, right? Didn't need to say we saw with our eyes. Just said we've seen him, which we have looked upon, which is another way to say what? We saw him, right? Second time there. We've looked upon, which we have touched 
with our hands. Yes, John, that is what you touch with. Concerning the word of life, verse 2, the life that was made manifest. What does manifest mean? We saw him, right? The third time he said that. And we have seen it, fourth time now, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest again, fifth time. That which we have seen, sixth time, and heard. Now the second time he talked about hearing Christ. We proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see how emphatic John is? It's a bit over the top, isn't it? It's ridiculous in some ways. Why is he doing this? Well, partly he's defending the faith against, I think, some early Gnostic teachings who believe that Jesus was only coming in the spirit and not in the flesh. But also, this is old man John rejoicing in the fact that he got to see God in flesh. He's still blown away in his old age that he got to go fishing with God, that God was his friend, that he got to live out what all the Old Testament saints longed for, to draw near to God, to commune with God, to live at peace with God. He got to do that with Jesus Christ himself. And so what has he turned around to do after he's dwelt with God and seen God in flesh? He proclaims that God came in the flesh. He turned and called the world, just like all the apostles, by the way, said, God incarnate has come to us. And like James says in James 4, 8, draw near to God. Draw near to God in Christ, and he will draw near to you. The apostles saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead, but it didn't stop there. They observed Christ, but then they also proclaimed Christ. That's our next point, our fifth line here. What is the gospel? It's the proclamation of Christ. Look at the fifth line. Still talking about Christ. Christ was proclaimed among the nations. See, the, probably the biggest example of this, at least the first big example of this, is at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, you remember it was there at Pentecost when Peter preached that the gospel spread to different kinds of tongues and different kinds of nations. They heard the gospel and the glory of Christ in their own language. And let's not forget, that is a restoration of what was lost in Genesis chapter 10 at the Tower of Babel. We remember that, don't we? The people of God rebelled against God. They built a tower to the heavens trying to reach God themselves, built this great monument to themselves, trying to make their name great. And, and at the end of the day, God still had to come down, come down to see their great and glorious work and see their little measly little tower. And he confused their languages and scattered them around the world. But that curse was reversed at Pentecost. When the Spirit descended on the church and spoke the glories of God with the language of all the nations and the nations understood. And brothers and sisters, that was just the beginning. Because ever since Pentecost, the word has been spreading to every tribe, language, people, and tongue. And Paul himself later said that's what the purpose of the gospel was, to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. So that he can say this in Ephesians 2, remember that you, you Gentiles, you us, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But 
now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I have no doubt that Paul believed those words. But I have to wonder, did he imagine that thousands of years later, the household of God would gather here in Bakersfield, in a high school, to praise the name of our Lord, to remember the incarnation, to see the work of our missionaries, to be proclaiming the gospel to our friends and family, and to pray that God would send more people out to continue to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is so important. This is the purpose of Christmas. It's all about missions. Yeah, we focus on Joseph and Mary and little baby Jesus. We need to talk about the incarnation and the promises fulfilled in Christ. But all of those things happened so that Christ could be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. So when you hear the Christmas story, when you tell your kids about little baby Jesus and the wise men and all these details, pray that that same story would make it to the ends of the earth. Pray that our missionaries would one day get to share the Christmas story with the people they're laboring among right now, learning their language, that that language will talk about the glories of Christ in the incarnation one day. And don't forget, as you gather with friends and family all around you, the lost and dying world needs to hear this. They become so numb to it with all these Christmas songs. They think Christmas is all about traditions and food and family and decorations. And, and look, there's nothing wrong with those things. Enjoy them. Love them. and Do your own traditions. But that's not the purpose of Christmas. That sounds ridiculous to even say it, but Christmas is about Christ. Proclaiming Christ to our family and our friends and our loved ones and our neighbors. So this year, if not before, preach the gospel, brothers and sisters. Declare to the world that their Lord has come. Call the whole earth to receive her king and rejoice as we will later sing joy to the world. And in case you think that's a lost cause, in case you think that it'll never get through to your friends and family, then you need to hear the sixth point. What is the gospel? It's the reception of Christ. Jesus Christ, the mystery of godliness, was not just proclaimed, but the sixth line says, he was also what? Believed on in the world. Yes, the gospel will make it to all nations. They will hear the gospel. But this is a guarantee that every tribe, language, people, and nation, there will be some from every one of those people groups who receive Christ by faith, who trust in him. There will be a church in every people group. This is why we send out missionaries. We're not sending them out as a lost cause. We know that there will be wanchy people at the throne at the end of time. There will be MBMB people at the end of time. And we pray more and more because they will receive Christ. We actually know how it ends. We actually know what the goal of Christmas is and what it looks like from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, listen to this. Verse 9, and this, I look, this is John talking again, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lord, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out in a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. See, this is why God revealed the mystery of the gospel. This is why the second person of the Trinity became man, incarnate. This is why Christ was justified and observed by the apostles and proclaimed to the ends of the earth so that he would be received by his people, which he chose before the foundation of the world to worship him forever. So the only question we need to answer then, or we need to attend to, is have you received him? Are you trusting in the finished work of Christ here today? The life, death, and resurrection of Christ and glories of the ascension. Have you received him as your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And I, kids, I really get worried about you sometimes because you hear the gospel proclaimed every single week. You grow up with this. You probably even hear it in your homes and family worship. And many times it's so easy to grow numb to this. Just to think, oh, this is just what we do as a family. But have you trusted in Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Are you walking in faith with Christ? Or has this just become kind of a chore for you? You go to church, you do the Christian thing to check a box. You think, well, this is my parents' thing, really. And when I grow up and get on my own, then I'll decide and I'll probably just walk away from the church. Or maybe, more likely, I'll bet many of you think, well, you know what, I think this is true. I believe God was incarnate, but I don't want to give myself to this now. Someday, I'll repent and walk with him. But right now, the world seems to be offering some pretty good stuff. And so I'm going to run after that, and then maybe one day I'll come back. Now, I'm sure there are adults in here that are in that situation this morning who have realized it's a fool's errand to run after the world. Because you're chasing after the wind. It will never satisfy you, leave you dead and broken. And really what you're doing by running after the world is just storing up wrath for yourself for the day of judgment. And you know that if you died in your sins today, you would face the wrath of God for all eternity because of your sin. But the good news of Christmas, there's still time. There's still hope. There's still a chance to repent. Still a chance to receive this Savior and trust him and follow him for the rest of your days. Listen to God call us to repent and receive him in Isaiah 55, verse 6. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. That's repentance. Why? That the Lord may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's what Christmas shows us. God became a man to save us from our sins. And the message is that that same God who died for us will abundantly pardon. Don't waste another second running after this world. Don't plan to come back and repent later. Repent now. Return to your Lord. To return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And how do you persevere in faith? Where's your hope to the end? Well, it's in our seventh point. Seventh and last point. 
What is the gospel? It's the glorification of Christ. Look at the last line. Still talking about Christ, still talking about our Lord, taken up into glory. Now these words are probably familiar, I hope. We see them in Luke, we see them in Acts, describing the ascension. It's the moment at the end of the Gospels, the beginning of Acts, where Jesus kind of, the risen Lord, raises from the dead, and then he ascends into the clouds and disappears in the clouds. Now where is he going? He's going to his heavenly throne, at the Father's right side, where he will rule and reign in glory. That's obviously clear here. But here's my question. Why would Paul put the ascension at the end? It's a weird place, isn't it? It's, it totally messes up the chronological order of this whole hymn. The ascension happened before Pentecost, before Christ was proclaimed, before Christ was really received among the nations, but then Paul throws it in at the end here. What's he doing? Well, he's not making a chronological point. He's making a theological point. Remember, this is a hymn. This is a confession. The church will be memorizing this and seeing this for generations after Paul. So what does Paul want the church to remember? What does he want to have the church ring in their ears as they sing this and meditate on the person and work of Christ? He wants the church to remember when they walk away from corporate worship that their Lord, our Lord, is in glory right now. Now we don't think about that at Christmas. We look back. Look back to the manger, back to the beginning, but we have to remember that all that led to Christ in glory right now. We need to remember that our Lord is sovereignly ruling and reigning on his heavenly throne right now, providentially guiding the nations and the church and all things to the end of his glory so that he will continue to receive glory. He's building his church right now. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he's also praying for us. Praying for his children. Interceding, it says in Romans 8, 35. Interceding so that we will not be separated from the love of Christ. So that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. The good news is he will continue in glory, in his glorious rule, his glorious session, until he also returns in glory. And what will he do when he returns in glory? Destroy wickedness and sin and save his people forever. Revelation, again, shows us how it ends. When Christ returns in glory, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall reign no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, that is our hope right now. We have to remember that our Lord reigns. He is on the throne right now, working all things for our good. And he will return one day to finish what he started, to save us from everything that ails us in this world, sin and death and all of its consequences. And when he returns, he will also glorify us. We will dwell with him in glory. See, this helps us remember that even though things are tough and the seasons get harder and sin seems to never end, the battle with sin is just ongoing, we know for certain because our Lord is in glory and he's returning in glory that we will make it also to glory, that we will make it home one day, safe and sound and looking just like Jesus. That's our hope. Let's pray that God would help us to trust him. Heavenly Father, thank you for this blessed hope. 
this blessed hymn, what a blessing it is to know the mystery of godliness. To reflect on the incarnate Christ who was justified in his resurrection, who was proclaimed among the nations, who was received by us and many other brothers and sisters around the world, and who one day will raise, not just raise from the dead in glory, but one day come back in glory and raise his people to glory as well. Father, help us to rejoice in the glories of the gospel. Help us to see Christ as the gospel and all that he has done and everything that he is. Pray, Lord, that we would praise him. Pray that we would praise him to the end of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.